It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Busy hour coming your way. Senator James Langford at the bottom of the hour. That should make KRMG listeners extremely happy. He's from Oklahoma, a Senate uh, Homeland Security and Finance uh, Committee member. And I got to get him to weigh in on some of the big stories of the day. Today, also, Senator Blumenthal, Durbin, and Grassley will hold a press conference. Uh, we're very curious to see where that's going to go as we talk about the FBI and the mishandling of the Larry Nassar situation with the Olympics. That's kind of a sidebar, but it would be kind of good if the FBI did their job. And the Secretary of State Blinken will meet with the Australian Foreign Minister. Maybe he'll explain to him now why we're leaving Afghanistan and leaving everybody behind. Maybe that'll come up. Maybe it won't. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to all those things that we hold dear as Californians and I would argue as Americans. Okay, uh, that is how one person can interpret it. For example, Gavin Newsom, after he won his recall election, uh, it falls way short. Newsom wins with over 65% of people said, no, he should not be recalled. So why were there so many Dems so nervous in a bright blue state to begin with? Oh, yeah, I remember because Gavin Newsom is terrible at his job. We'll discuss it. Number two. Imagine if tomorrow General Milley decides, I think Joe Biden is senile. And so you know what? I'm not going to follow his orders. I'm going to collude with Russia and China to prevent us from acting. Or 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 a future president. I don't think he's in his right mind either because it is the essence, a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. Unbelievable. That's Senator Marco Rubio talking about the report in the Bob Woodward book that says General Milley, uh, General Milley was confiding with others behind Donald Trump's back because they thought he was out of control, calling China twice and saying, I'll give you a heads up. We've known you for five years if I'm going to bomb. Milley must go. Not only did he preside over a military catastrophe in Afghanistan, but if this is all true, what I just said, and the allegiance is to China, not to Trump. The general better speak up now or pack up now. Number one. Who made the decisions on this? Was it the president of the United States? Ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Have you submitted your resignation regarding this issue? I have not. As a secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. There has to be accountability. And that was kind of encouraging because that last comment was from a Democrat. Blinken balks at stranded Americans. At airlifting unknown Afghans, he never really answers the question. Mistakenly droning a family of allies, falsely claims the Afghan collapse, unknowable and more as the Taliban demands. We give them free money and aid. We bring you the latest from that terror state of Afghanistan. Terror state because our uh, uh, deputy director of national intelligence said in a year and a half, Al-Qaeda will be able to attack us here at home from Afghanistan. Isn't that a violation of the six-page deal that evidently Joe Biden couldn't break of Donald Trump's when he broke everything else? Unbelievable series of events yesterday. I'll play, in case you're, you're working, you're going back to school, 
Maybe you're kind enough to listen to the show. You're en route now and you missed yesterday's proceedings. Bob Menendez, chair. Democrats have control. You have Rand Paul, Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz all teeing off. And to their credit, they're looking to get answers. But also in their questions, they're providing information and questions that have to be answered. So here's a listen of uh, various, from Tony Blinken to Senator Rich, who's the first one you hear from, Ted Cruz, you recognize his voice, and Senator Haggerty of Tennessee, uh, of course, Rand Paul. Let's listen to cut one. Who is responsible? Who made the decisions on this? Was it the president of the United States? Uh, ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Can you pledge today without equivocation that the Biden administration will not release any of this money to the Taliban? Uh, absent the Taliban making good on the uh, commitments and expectations of the uh, international community that I've outlined uh, previously, that's correct. Maybe we could deduct a fee for the weapons they took. Have you submitted your resignation regarding this issue? I have not. The lack of accountability here, the lack of accountability in this administration is shocking to me. I am responsible for the decisions I make. I'm responsible for the actions of my department. Did the State Department give the Taliban a list or multiple list of Americans and or Afghans that we wanted out? And you know the answer Those was... reports, oh. the idea that we would do anything to endanger uh, our citizens or anyone else at a time when we were trying to save their lives is flat out wrong. But he would go on to answer the question by saying, yeah, we had to get a bus through, so we had told everyone's name and paperwork and gave it to them. Well, those were some of the students. They were outraged because their name was on the list, but they never got on the bus. So now they're wanted people. And by the way, yesterday, an elite sniper that helped the allies, NATO, was killed uh, by that Taliban. You know, those professionals that really going about their job professionally, who we gave $64 million worth of aid to and who are asking for more because they let us out of the country. Do you believe this? That's what the Taliban is saying. Turns out they have 18 million people totally dependent on the government, like Iraq, totally dependent on the government for aid. So congratulations, Taliban. Have at it. There's your country. That's part of the responsibility. It's not just about chopping off heads and all that glorious stuff. You actually have to feed the people, give them clothing and answer their questions, give them stickers for inspections and uh, register their cars. Or you could do uh, what other people do and hunt them down and kill them, even though you said everyone gets amnesty. President Obama's, uh, President Obama's approval rating on a very Democratic-friendly poll, Quinnipiac, is now at 42%. 42%, 50% disapproved. A lot of it has to do with Afghanistan. That's why they're chanting blank F, uh, blank Joe Biden at football games, because people are fed up. They're not doing it for his Republican talking points. They're doing it because they're fed up with the tone. They're fed up with the vaccine mandates. They're fed up with the blaming people that their patients are running thin. They're fed up with what's going on at the border. It's not because they like Donald Trump. It's because they cannot believe what we're seeing on a regular basis. And I thought it was significant, too, that, you know, there were some Democrats that weren't looking to make excuses for their terrible administration. Bob Menendez is one. Cut three. Mr. Secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. This committee expects to receive a full explanation of the administration's decisions on Afghanistan since coming into office last January. There has to be accountability. Yeah, that would be nice. And they got to answer some questions. But not all Democrats were critical. Listen to Senator Ed Markey. Can you say 1-800-Donald-Trump is the problem? Cut 13. And I want to be sure that Americans at home understand the position President Biden was placed in. 
President Trump's deal with the Taliban exchanged a halt in Taliban offensives against our troops for a commitment that we would leave the country by May of this year. But President Trump, of course, did not leave an actual plan to evacuate uh, all of those who uh, should have been taken out of Afghanistan. And President Trump's vision without a plan is and was an hallucination. Okay. You don't need a plan. It's a six-point. Very easy. Uh, these are the things you got to do. You're going to form a coalition government. You're going to make sure not to attack our people. You're not going to look to take over provinces. This is all in the six pages. It's all there. It's all there. Do I think eventually with Trump people knew that the Taliban would have the power and probably take over the government? But they're going to do it through a gradual process. But if you look at the intelligence after Trump left, it became clear. If you see the provinces falling, which are a violation of the agreement, it became clear how this was going to go, which blew me away in July when Senator, excuse me, Senator President Biden came out and said, no, it's not inevitable Taliban take over this country. The Afghans have a 300,000 man fighting force. They're as well armed as and equipped as anybody in the world, but not according to Marco Rubio, who sees the same intelligence. And this is why he's so valuable. Cut 17. They can spin that to a lot of different people. They can't spin that to me because I spend hours every week as my job as the vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee reviewing the exact same intelligence that the State Department had, that the White House had. And and I went through it again earlier this week just to make sure that I wasn't mistaken in my memory. Anyone who was reading consistently the reporting and the analysis for the better part of three to four months and didn't conclude that, in fact, this could unravel very quickly, either A, doesn't know how to analyze this stuff and does not belong in that position, or B, willfully ignored it. Right. So when it fell rapidly and then you take the transcript to the phone call, you know that President Biden did this himself. And the Defense Department told him this and briefed him on this. They said, give me at least 4,000 at Bagram. They say 2,500 and descending at Bagram. He said, well, how many do I have? Well, you'll have 600. Then I can't defend Bagram. And he turns around and says, well, the Defense Department decided to leave Bagram. You gave them no choice. We love civilian control of the military, but they're not experts. Next. So there's a book coming out with Bob Woodward. It always takes people off. Not so much this explosive stuff, but a lot of times he's not, uh, he's not, he's hovering around but never gets into the truth. And that upset George Bush. We know about the, the Reagan people, the William Casey family, who I had a chance to do a feature with. And they still believe that Bob Woodward never snuck into a hospital. And the Casey stuff is all fiction. Uh, that Bush feel the same way. And Donald Trump feels burned about the first book, the second book. There were transcripts. And the third one they, it was, yes, this book that's coming out next week that is Bob Woodward without cooperation. So we worked around the final days called Peril, the final days of the Trump years and the, 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 the Trump days. So Trump knows he lost, or at least he said to other people he knows he lost, can't believe he lost, and other people he thinks he was robbed. So beside himself, it didn't take any expert to know or investigative reporter to reveal that he was extremely upset. But according to this, he was so upset that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought he was going to bomb China. Now, there's a lot of things that Donald Trump might do. But starting a war with a country when he spent four years getting us out of wars, not really typical of that. But it didn't stop Nancy Pelosi for calling up and blistering him, saying he can't be trusted. He's out of control. You have to stop him. Take away the nuclear codes. 
Now, General Milley, supposed to be calm under pressure, panics. And he evidently meets with Pentagon leaders and goes over what to do if Trump decides to order a launch, a nuclear launch. How does the Speaker of the House, who's hardly sane, get the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a Republican president to react like that? To the point where General Milley actually, and this is the treasonous stuff, called China. And he said, General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything's going to be okay. We are not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations against you. He went on to say, I have known, we have known each other for five years. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time, which is, uh, this is book is set to come out next week. What? You're going to call them ahead of time? What kind of general are you? What is wrong with you? They just poisoned the world with a pandemic. They're going back on their trade agreement. They've infiltrated our election system. They've got involved in social media. They've hacked our accounts. They've stolen our our identification. They are threatening Taiwan. They've steamrolled Hong Kong. And you want to be his friend? And you're going behind the sitting president's back? If this is indeed true, uh, you're more than just a little bit in trouble. Here is Senator Josh Hawley. Yesterday, cut 22. If these reports are accurate, Laura, what he has done, General Milley, is go outside the chain of command. He's broken the chain of command. He has threatened the constitutional principle of civilian control of the military. He doesn't have the right. He doesn't have the authority to contact our opponents in Beijing and tell them that he will inform them about any action we might take before we take it. I mean, I can't believe I'm reading this. I hope these reports are inaccurate. But he does need to resign. He needs to resign, and if he won't resign, he needs to be fired. Remember, General Milley was highlighted in another book uh, by the Washington Post writers. This uh, uh, Philip Rucker, who's co-founded, uh, uh, co-wrote this book, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, to then-President Trump, quote, this is from Milley, not denied. He says, I don't want to talk about the book. The classic authoritarian, authoritarian leader and nothing to lose. This is the Reichstag moment. They may try, but they're not going to... Uh, succeed, Milley said, using an expletive. You can't do this without the military. You can't do this without the CIA and FBI. We're the guys with the guns. He's talking about refusing to leave in his final days of office. So you talk about unhinged. It's Milley that's unhinged. He cannot just let this go. Don't just say it's a guy selling a book. You have to actually tell us what you were doing behind the scenes. Because I know people that thought that Richard Nixon was nuts at the end of his years. Why didn't they intervene then? A lot of people were saying, well, you know, Ronald Reagan has got this, uh, the early signs of Alzheimer's in office. Why don't you intervene then? You know, maybe Bill Clinton would have started a war to get everyone's focus, and that was the rumor, uh, off Monica Lewinsky. Why do you intervene then? But now we have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying a guy that has not gotten into any wars, that he's going to go bomb China because the speaker, who just impeached him for the second time for no reason— Said, look out. What do you think about this? 1-866-408-7669. Senator James Langford at the bottom of the arrow. But I'll take your calls on this and also on the recall last night. A, a substantial win for Gavin Newsom. Where do we go from here? I'll tell you on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Holding our politicians' feet to the fire no matter who they are. That's Brian Kilmeade. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
He's violated the law if this turns out to be true. We really need to hear from him. Congress needs to bring him over. He needs to be placed under oath and he needs to answer questions in front of the Senate about this entire affair. It needs to be very straightforward. They, they then will have to determine whether or not the law has been broken. But from our standpoint, knowing what we do about who has the authority to do what and where he fits in within the broad scheme of things, this is wrong. Remember, the president is not able to act independently and launch a nuclear weapon. He has a consultative process. So we're talking about the story in a book that's coming out called Peril that Mark Milley, in a, in a, after a blunt phone call with Nancy Pelosi, got on the phone and called China twice in one day to say, don't worry about it. He also, according to this book, called the director of the National Security Agency, Paul Nakasone, and told him, needles up, keep watching, scan. And he told the CIA director, Gina Haspel, aggressively watch everything 360. They actually thought that Donald Trump was going to walk in and just start nuking people. Jason, listening online in Kentucky. Hey, Jason. Hey, Brian, I just don't buy into the authenticity of these allegations just yet. I do believe that Millie should go immediately to questioning. I think Jennifer Griffith reported this morning perhaps some inaccuracies in the story, but I do believe he should have to answer to it sooner than the September 23rd hearing I think he's scheduled to be in. But I just kind of question that until you can hear from him. But on the flip side, Brian, I just kind of want to get your thoughts, too, on potentially releasing that additional funds to the Taliban that uh, Blinken commented on yesterday. I think they are gone because the Taliban thanked America for the $64 million as part of the $1.2 billion they got in international aid. That's pretty—I'm pretty sure that they are thanking us for a reason. So on Jennifer Griffin uh, remarks, so she called the Pentagon when this story came out, and she's uh, reporting on that additionally today. Uh, Eric, we might want to grab that for the first half hour. I think she was right on top. They said this. The Pentagon tells Fox News that some of the characterizations in the Woodward Costa book are nonsense. There was no secret meeting over nuclear procedure or attempt to undermine the president's authority. Two days after the Capitol riot, House, House Speaker Pelosi revealed that she called uh, Milley about taking the nuclear football away. Milley told the audibly distraught speaker that she could not do that. But he did speak with Joint Chiefs of Staff and others about lawful procedure when it comes to a potential nuclear launch. Those procedures were reviewed in the wake of January 6th. Separately, I'm told that Milley had multiple calls with the Chinese counterpart and NATO allies in the wake of January 6th in order to reassure them the U.S. government was stable and to reassure China the U.S. US was not going to do a surprise attack. Why would that be necessary? Why would that be necessary? So that shows you... There's something there that's true, and they're already trying to parse it out. He's got to call a press conference. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, So we're following this story that's in the Woodward book, and there's always pushback on some of the things in his book. We know he has got... Great uh, sources. This time he does not have Donald Trump. And they talk about the uh, the days after Trump lost the election, how he pushed back on Mike Pence, the vice president at the time, said, Mike, if you're really my friend, you won't go along with this. Think about the power that you have. He said, I'm not I, I don't have any power to not verify and sanctify the election results. I show up. It's just a ceremonial position. That's what I do. Remember, there was pushback in 2016 when Vice President Joe Biden was there. They said that Donald Trump cheated. The Russians gave it to him. And and Joe Biden had to gavel everybody down and say, listen, that's it. Electoral college is sealed. That's done. 
But the other big story is General Milley. Uh, was he working behind the scenes to throttle President Trump? That's against the balance of power, civilian-run government. You can't, as a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, try to take over the country, even if you think it's in our best interest. It's not up to you. So there's a pushback now that, about General Milley's calls to China, uh, about General Milley trying to stop the president, take away the nuclear codes, meeting behind everybody's back with the, with the other generals at the Pentagon. Here's Jennifer's report from moments ago. Multiple Pentagon officials tell me the characterizations of the phone calls with the Chinese in the book are not accurate and were taken out of context. I spoke with a former senior Trump defense official who told me the phone call to the Chinese was done at the request of then-Defense Secretary Mark Esper. It was a follow-up to a call placed by the Defense Secretary's policy officials designed to lower the temperature and prevent the U.S. and China from stumbling into a conflict. U.S. intelligence at the time suggested the Chinese were jumpy about all the noise coming out of Washington surrounding the election. The phone call was made at the request of the civilian leadership of the military. General Milley was asked to follow up. At no time did General Milley promise to give the Chinese a heads up if the U.S. planned to strike. So that's the pushback from the Pentagon. Where, where is the truth there? And I think General Milley's got to speak up anyway. It's not up to him to wait to go to a hearing, uh, to read prepared remarks and say, I'm not here to sell a book. It's This is too serious, but maybe I'm overstating it. I want to get Senator James Lankford's opinion, member of the Senate Homeland Security Committee and Finance Committee out of Oklahoma, of course. Senator, welcome back. Always great to be with you, Brian. Senator, you missed it, but Jennifer Griffin just read uh, the Pentagon's pushback on the Milley story. But from what you know, and are you familiar with the story, first off? Well, loosely familiar with it just because we're getting bits and pieces of everything at this point. So what I could tell you is this. They're accusing him of making two calls to China, essentially saying, I'll give you a warning if we were going to attack you. I got things under control without telling the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, there's one of several stories that are out this. You're, you're right. Uh, the, the general has to come out and be able to come clean to be able to say what happened, what didn't happen, and uh, and all the different process issues. Uh, president Trump has been very, very clear that he feels like he was undercut uh, multiple times by Milley. And at this point, uh, we've got to have somebody there that is more worried about trying to be able to take on our enemies and their white rage in the military. And uh, so at, at this point, there's a lot of questions that are going to come out. He's going to come in front of committees there. He's going to answer those questions. And then uh, once he's a civilian, he'll be able to answer even more. I want you to hear what Marco Rubio said last night. Cut 21. Imagine if tomorrow General Milley decides, I think Joe Biden is senile. And so you know what? I'm not going to follow his orders. I'm going to collude with Russia and China to prevent us from acting. Or, or, they, or a future president. I don't think he's in his right mind either because it, it is the essence, a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. If he didn't do it, I don't think we wait to get questioned. Last time when he was asked from the, about the Washington Post book, uh, Philip Rucker's book, he said, I'm not here to sell a book or verify or anything and talk about somebody's book. He, he doesn't have that option now. Don't you agree? He does not have that option. Yeah, he's got to be able to come clean on all of this. And this becomes a decision, uh, as Marco Rubio was saying there, we have civilian leadership of our military. Uh, the military can decide, I'm just not going to do this or undercut civilian leadership regardless. And uh, so that, that is the nature of our republic, is to be able to make sure that we have civilian leadership. And that leadership has to lead and has to know that the people under them are following their orders. So we understand, too, that uh, General Milley recommended and told President Biden some of the scenarios that could take place if we pulled out when he wanted to pull out. He wanted 4,000 troops reportedly. And Joe Biden says, you got 600. He goes, well, if you give me 600, I can't hold Bagram. Then they turn around and say, well, the Defense Department told me they can't hold Bagram. 
Excuse me. Right. That, so yep. uh, and, unwind this, Senator. Tell me practical. I know we have civilian leadership, but they are not military experts. And now we're all paying the price. In we've been humiliated on the global stage, and we now have a terror state where we once paid, which we occupied for 20 years. So there was an agenda set for how to be able to depart from Afghanistan, and they were following the calendar rather than following the situation on the ground. When it got to each stage, even though the Taliban were accelerating to the next uh, to the next town, the next town, the next town, and taking over, uh, they were just continuing to be able to follow the next plan on it rather than look at the situation on the ground. So that is a major mistake. Uh, I understand that they can lay out an agenda from the military side. And that civilian leadership can look at it and say, these are the decisions that I want to be able to make. But someone should have been coming back to the White House, and I'm, I'm confident that they did, and said, here's the situation on the ground. And someone somewhere was saying, nope, keep following the calendar rather, and just ignore what was actually going on. So that's part of the questions that we've got to get. If that's Millie, if that's other uh, folks in the Joint Chiefs uh, that were saying just ignore what's actually happening on the ground, they need to be held to account. If it's the president of the United States uh, that was late in making a decision or wouldn't make a decision or said just follow the calendar and the plan regardless of what's going on, the American people need to know that as well. Uh, but the facts have got to come out because there were enormous mistakes made in this uh, when they uh, form a plan and then run a plan regardless of what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, Senator, as a Republican, this is a political question. What do you take from Gavin Newsom's successful recall election? Uh, I take that uh, it's a reminder, again, of just how left-leaning California really is, uh, that they can uh, look at a situation like Gavin Newsom's doing to the state, rolling blackouts, uh, all the major problems that they're having, uh, all the uh, issues they're having with business, the high cost, the high taxes, and then the craziness of all of how he handled COVID-19. And, uh, and to say that state's just as left as we all thought that state was. So he keeps it. I mean, does uh, Larry Elder's success tell you anything? Does the fact that they said uh, he is a clone of Donald Trump and that they want to run against Donald Trump, who's not even tweeting, able to tweet anymore, what does that tell you as a political for a political strategy? Yeah, as a political strategy, obviously the, the far left is still just as obsessed with Trump derangement syndrome, that they're just every single day. Uh, looking for President Trump behind every single thing, that they're still terrified of him. And uh, so that's what that reminds me of, again, that they are still afraid of his leadership. They're afraid of his plan. They're afraid of his policies. And uh, they're going to continue to find every way they can to be able to try to uh, to drive him out, uh, to be able to make sure he can't speak in anymore to what's happening in the country. So talk about the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. They're still putting that forward, even though Joe Manchin says, I won't sign off on it. Kirsten Cinema uh, did a spreadsheet on everything that she would and wouldn't pay for. So they're not even asking for Republican input. They're going to do it on simple 50, uh, 51 Democratic senators. What do you hear is going to happen there? Well, the, what, what's interesting is I hear what's going to happen that is a different plan from different people that can't all be the same. So the House Ways and Means Committee is uh, putting forward their plan. Everyone's saying, well, this is the plan. But the problem is the Rules Committee in the House is saying, actually, we're going to adjust that plan once it comes to us. And the Finance Committee, the Democrats there are saying, well, actually, we're going to have a different plan as well. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are saying, actually, there's a different plan. And Bernie Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren are saying, actually, there's a different plan. So right now it's train wreck because Democrats are all coming every which direction and trying to figure out what they're going to try to do with this. They're all they're all seeing this as their moment in history that we can get everything we ever dreamed, we ever wanted, every entitlement, uh, every new tax increase, every new uh, every new piece. But realizing that every 
Democrat in the Senate is a kingmaker here. If any one of them says, no, that's not the plan, or if any four Democrats in the House decide, no, that's not the plan, it doesn't happen. So we understand President Biden's going to meet with uh, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema uh, today, and we thought that this, this uh, the mega bill was going to be written by today. Next week, we will, excuse me, on the 27th, I understand you're going to vote on the bipartisan bill. Are you going to vote for that bill? They say 19 uh, Republicans are for this infrastructure bill with $550 billion of new money. Yeah, I am not going to vote for it uh, a second time. I didn't vote for it a first time, didn't support it all the way through because I could see what this is. This is this is not an infrastructure bill. This is a big liberal bill that they put an infrastructure bill into. Uh, it has half a trillion dollars in new debt uh, in it. Uh, it has the seeds for the Green New Deal in it. Uh, it has all kinds of problems and issues that are within this bill. So, no, I, I absolutely will not support this bill. I've supported other infrastructure bills in the past because they've actually been focused on infrastructure. Uh, this one just has infrastructure and a larger liberal bill. Uh, so are the Senator Portman, Senator Cassidy being duped? They are making their own decision on what direction that they want to go. I can just tell you, when I look at the facts on the ground and I try to be able to pull out the actual cost, how it's being paid for and not paid for, uh, what this means to the future of how we handle infrastructure, uh, and what this means to the future of our country's debt, uh, there's no way I can support this. All right. So the debt limit extension, it looks like Senator McConnell's not budging. He says, I'm not going to raise, raise the debt limit. Is this going to shut down the government? Well, it's two separate issues there. The, the government shutdown is actually coming September the 30th. If Democrats don't pull together some sort of short-term funding re- uh, resolution uh, to be able to move the funding for the government, we'll have another government shutdown. The Senate has not taken up a single appropriation bill. There's 12 of them. Not even one of them has been through committee. They've not even tried. Uh, So that's the remarkable part about this, as you look at it and go, Chuck Schumer's team has not even tried to do anything on budget related, not even tried to have any conversations across the aisle on it. So they're they're stuck in that. Then the second part about this is the debt ceiling. That'll be sometime in October. We've made it very clear. Democrats did a $2 trillion COVID bill that was a straight partisan bill that was not even COVID-related in March. They're doing a $3.5 trillion new entitlement spending. We're not going to help them do all that additional spending. Uh, When it gets to the debt ceiling, I've been very clear from the very beginning when I came in, we have to be able to deal with debt issues. You can't solve it all in one year, but you can start a plan to be able to get out of it. They're not even trying to be able to get out of a uh, out of debt at this point. They're just trying to add more to it and to keep accelerating. So they should not count on Republicans trying to be able to help them pay for what they're actually pulling off to the country. And 47 of us uh, in the uh, Senate, the 47 Republicans have all said we're not going to support a debt ceiling increase. Democrats put us into this mess. They can actually take care of this mess themselves. So you're reintroducing the prevent government shutdown bill. Can you tell us what that is? I can, actually. This is one several years ago that I actually worked with a Democrat senator to say, how do we end government shutdowns? Because government shutdowns actually cost money. They cause chaos. They cause the American people to have trouble actually getting permitting and licensing and contact with federal agencies. And federal employees get paid all the way through it, whether they're working or not. Uh, So it, it actually loses money and just a nuisance to the country. So we put together a very simple proposal uh, three years ago, we continue to be able to gain momentum on it. It just gets to uh, it gets to the heart of the issue. If September 30th comes and goes, the end of the fiscal year, we don't have the appropriation bills done, you automatically uh, continue at last year's level. But members of Congress and our staff cannot travel. We're actually in D.C. 
and we have to stay there until all 12 appropriation bills are done. Uh, this is the equivalent of when uh, my brother and I got into a fight when we were kids, shockingly enough. My mom would throw us into the same room and would say, you guys can come out once you settle this. Uh, this is the legislative equivalent of that to say Congress has to stay in continuous session seven days a week until they actually solve the problem. They can't leave uh, until that's actually done. Right now, what we'll see is we'll get to the end of fiscal year and people will say, well, let's leave for the weekend and then we'll come back next week or we'll, we'll take a week away from D.C. and we'll come back. And uh, the, the shutdown just continues and the chaos continues. If Congress has to stay in continuous session until it gets solved, it'll actually get solved. So lastly, we know the border is a mess and we've never in my lifetime seen it so bad. And we understand that the, uh, the Secretary of has just lost his chief of staff. He just resigned. Uh, b- maybe because of this, we don't know the details yet. Uh, is there any chance that the American people, that the, the border towns in Texas in, uh, in uh, New Mexico, as well as Arizona, are going to rise up and demand he do something as people in busloads and plane loads are being dropped all around the country. The chief of staff, is, uh, her name is Karen uh, Olick uh, with Homeland Security. Uh, she said, uh, we are grateful for Karen for the service during this critical nine months. But she's resigning for a reason. What's going on here? Yeah, right now what's happening is Homeland Security can't get their act together. They they honestly thought we could take down the Trump policies, put in our policies, and just tell people nicely not to cross the border and people wouldn't cross the border illegally. They're finding out that doesn't work. There's a reason those Trump policies did work. There's a reason their policies do not work. We have record numbers of crossing every single month since March, and it continues to accelerate with record numbers. Uh, in the meantime, federal courts have stepped in and have instructed Homeland Security that they have to reinstate parts of the Trump policy. The Remain in Mexico policy has to be put back into place. Uh, I have already been on the phone back and forth with uh, Secretary Mayorkas saying, I need a plan for when you're going to reinstate this. The federal courts have instructed you to do that. They have to do it. He has said, we're working on that. We are going to reinstate that and follow the federal court order. And so we're providing accountability to make sure that actually occurs. And then we're continuing to be able to press in every single area to make sure that the American people don't lose track of this because the national media has just stopped talking about the border crisis and everyone just assumes, oh, it's getting better. It's not getting better. It continues to get worse and worse. No question. It's not getting better. Senator James Langford, thanks so much. You're a busy guy. Well, there's a lot going on right now. Thanks, right. For, thanks for staying on top of it, Brian. You, you got it, Senator. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. one 408 7669 Back in a moment with your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. It was an election day here in California. People across the state went to the polls to decide whether or not to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. Late polling seemed to point to a blowout Newsom win. By the time this show airs, Newsom could already be celebrating with a masterless dinner at the French Laundry. That is true. That really spawned everything. I was shocked to see some of these exit poll results. 70% support uh, masks in schools. 45% supported his crackdown, his crackdown on, on during the COVID-19 virus heyday. Only 32% were against it. 18% said it wasn't strict enough. That's unbelievable to me. How the heck you can't be polling business owners? Uh, Steve, you're in Kansas. Hey, Steve. 
Brian, yeah, uh, really about General Milley, uh, my yep. first observation is, did Trump try to launch an attack? If not, and I don't think he did, Milley's fears were unfounded. His analysis was wrong. And, and this, you know, the, the bigger point problem I see is the politic, politicization of the military. This is very disturbing to me. Not just Milley, and he's done it a couple times, but the uh, service academy oversight boards have had forced resignations so that the Biden administration could get people in there that share their values. This is unprecedented. This is terrifying that we would have politics going on in the military in a way that's never happened in this country. And by the way, do you get rid of General Keene on your advisory board? That is, uh, you just don't want good advice. Because he couldn't care less about politics. He wants effectiveness. He was very critical of the president's, this, uh, President Trump's dismount from Afghanistan. But he was extreme. He knew that he could talk to him and knew that he could explain to him the ramifications. And the president would have come around. He believes that. So do I. But this, the way they left, you get rid of your advisory board rather than say to yourself, I wasn't getting great advice. That's bad advice. Thanks so much for listening. Go to BrianKilme.com. Find out about my joint appearances for the upcoming tour of the President and the Freedom Fighter. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 866 We're coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, there's a lot to discuss today. We know the President of the United States uh, is going to be having a press briefing. He'll make remarks on National Security Initiative. We'll see what that's about, see if he'll take some questions. The Vice President, it's always interesting, will deliver remarks with Secretary Yellen about the new Treasury report on child care. He'll suddenly say, we need to give everybody free child care, free preschool, free school lunches, free community college. It sounds good. It's free for everyone except for everybody else that pays for it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to all those things that we hold dear as Californians and I would argue as Americans. Uh, there, there it goes. It looks like you're going to have to be stuck for, through a full term, at least, with Governor Gavin Newsom. In Sacramento, we officially won uh, handily his recall vote. We'll see where he goes from here. I just was wondering why the Democrats were so nervous to bring in the president, the speaker, the vice president, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama. Oh, I remember, because he's terrible at his job. Number two. Imagine what? if tomorrow General Milley decides, I think Joe Biden is senile. And so you know what? I'm not going to follow his orders. I'm going to collude with Russia and China to prevent us from acting. Or, or, they, or a future president. I don't think he's in his right mind either because it is the essence, a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. Uh, that is Marco Rubio talking about the revelations in this brand new book that uh, General Milley uh, actually called China twice behind the president's back to say, don't worry about him. I got him under control. Not only did he preside over a military catastrophe in Afghanistan, but in the Woodward book, he seems to want to take over the country and show allegiance more to the Democrats and China than the president and his cabinet. I say he's got to speak up or pack up. Number one. Who made the decisions on this? Was it the president of the United States? Ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Have you submitted your resignation regarding this issue? 
I have not. Mr. Secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. There has to be accountability. I guess so. Uh, we'll see. Uh, not yet. Secretary of State Blinken balks at stranded Americans, airlifting unknown Afghans, mistakenly droning a family of allies, falsely claiming the Afghan collapse was unknowable and more as the Taliban demand. We give them more aid money. Evidently, we're still giving them millions. We bring you the latest from the terrorist state of Afghanistan. Let's bring in uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, uh, now retired, but chairman of the American Security at the American First Policy and he was a former advisor to the vice president of the United States. And I know the president always uh, relished and cherished his opinions. General uh, Kellogg, welcome back. Brian, thanks for having me. So Good for, to be here. Yeah, same here. Uh, so what about the revelations that General Milley called China twice uh, to say we're not going to attack? And the second time to say if I was going to attack, you've known me for five years, I would give you notice. And meeting with an emergency fashion with other generals over in the Pentagon to say, here's the plan. Should President Trump try to push the nuclear button? You were there. Was was General Milley working against the president? Yeah. You know, Brian, it's a great question. Look, I'm going to give you a big caveat. If, if what uh, is in the Woodward book is true, then Mark Milley needs to resign or be removed from his position immediately. He's, he's basically taking uh, Article 2 of the Constitution under his own wing and did not do – uh, proper service to the president of the United States. His role as chairman of the Joint Chiefs is to be the principal military advisor to the president of the United States and the National Security Council. That's it. He's got no forces under his control. Uh, he cannot give any command and control direct direction to combatant forces that are out there in the field. He was clearly in, his politi- in a political lane, in a lane he shouldn't have been in. And I've never seen any chairman do that before. I never saw Dunford do it. I never saw... Shelton do it, Dick Myers do it, Colin Powell. None of them operated in that political lane like he did. And it's really quite kind of disturbing to me that he would do it. So I, I think he's also lost all of his capital out there. He's already alienated 50% of the uh, nation out there, those that have uh, been on the Trump side. My concern right now is the fact that I don't think that the president will remove him. I think it's okay. And I think what you're heading for is what we uh, saw decades ago in that book, Seven days in May that they made into a movie where a chairman tried to remove a sitting president. And that's what you've got. I think he's lost all his credibility. Well, I mean, he said, according to this book, they're very specific. General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. We are not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations. He goes on. I have, we have known each other for five years. If we were going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. Really? Uh, what kind of yeah. strategy? What war college class is that in? Um, yeah. It's not going to be a surprise. Well, well, Brian, honestly, that's a clear violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There's an article in UCMJ, it's 103B, that's aiding the enemy. And they're talking about specifically communications, talking to the enemy uh, is a violation of that. So he's actually, if, if true, he's violated the Uniform Code of Military Justice alone, despite what others may say about more serious actions out there. So he's really uh, truly overstepped his bounds. And I think he's because of that, he's lost incredible credibility with everybody that's out there. And he moved into a lane he shouldn't have been in. I know I know you're you're in the book, too. And I'm going to bring you to that in a second. But for just you, General, I mean, you go in general circles. Uh, You're the military. You know, friends of friends of friends. Uh, These are the people 
that you've been with for decades. So did you see some of this? Is this something, did you see the disdain he had towards the president, especially after the church incident where he felt as though he made a big mistake and in his words was duped into walking over to the church in a uniform and he apologized for it the next day? Did you, could you sense his disdain for the president, distrust of the president? What I started to pick up was he thought he was the smarter than the president and he's the smartest guy in the room. And and that, candidly, that's a thing I'm concerned about because uh, the implication there is on the 6th of January or days around that, there, that, that we had some issues in, with the president in the White House and there was concerns. There was none there. I was in in the Oval Office on the 6th of January. Kaylee was in the office. Mark Meadows was there. Patrick Baloney, the White House uh, um, legal officer was there. Uh, Chief of Operations for the White House was there. We were all in the office. We all talked to him. Was he mad a little bit? Sure, but everybody gets mad. You get mad. I get mad. Presidents get mad. That happens. But we were operating in uh, with a lot of things going on in a very, very controlled environment. And he was, we was fine with it. I felt, I, you know, Brian, I was not concerned about the fate of the republic on that day. I really wasn't. Well, not only that day, I never thought the president would be profiled as somebody who was going to bomb China. In fact, the <laughs> criticism on him was he wanted to get out of wars. And yeah, that yeah. that ticked off a lot of conservatives. You know, Brian, I will tell you, I, I gave him a nickname. He didn't like it when I said to him, I said, Mr. President, you're a reluctant warrior. Well, he didn't like that. I said, no, that's a compliment. I said, as a former military guy, we want a commander in chief who's not going to pull the trigger automatically. And he wasn't that way. Brian, we did not start a major conflict in the four years he was in the office. There is no other president that can say that in recent times. And he did that. And yet, at the same time, he took very tough action when action was needed against Baghdadi, against Soleimani, against when the Syria Assad air yeah. gas. So, I mean, he was, uh, when I say reluctant warrior, I say that with great admiration for him. So I want you to hear what Jennifer Griffin said just to balance out this story because it is so serious. Multiple Pentagon officials tell me the characterizations of the phone calls with the Chinese in the book are not accurate and were taken out of context. I spoke with a former senior Trump defense official who told me the phone call to the Chinese was done at the request of then-Defense Secretary Mark Esper. It was a follow-up to a call placed by the defense secretary's policy officials designed to lower the temperature and prevent the U.S. and China from stumbling into a conflict. U.S. intelligence at the time suggested the Chinese were jumpy about all the noise coming out of Washington surrounding the election. The phone call was made at the request of the civilian leadership of the military. General Milley was asked to follow up. At no time did General Milley promise to give the Chinese a heads up if the U.S. planned to strike. So that's the pushback in Pentagon speak. Do you feel better about it? I think he's still got to call a press conference. He can't just say, I don't, I'm not in the, I'm not in the business of uh, verifying books. I don't think that's going to be an option like he had last time. Well, I think it's, it actually goes worse than that, and I, and I appreciate what Jennifer said. But there are only two national command authorities. It's the president and the secretary of defense. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is not in that line. He should not be calling his counterpart or anybody else out there without informing the president of the United States on what he was doing. So they violated, even Esper violated that. The one who should have picked up the phone is Esper if he wanted to do it. And then he should have told the president, he should have actually asked the president beforehand and said this is what he was going to do. I mean, that just shows some 
very candidly, Brian, some real incompetence on the part of Esper and Millie as well. And I know what Jennifer's saying, but that's Pentagon speak for devil talk of trying to make something out of a really bad situation. And that's where they're at right now, a bad situation. So General Kellogg, our guest, so here's the quote from you in the book. This is on January 6th from you. Right. You should really do a tweet. You're talking to the president. You need to get a tweet out real quick. Help control the crowd up there. This is out of control. They are not going to be able to control this, sir. They're not prepared for it. Once a mob starts turning like that, you've lost it. And Trump said, yeah. And Trump blinked and kept watching television. What could you tell me about that, uh, how, how the veracity of that statement? Well, the, the statement is, is true. But what followed wasn't just what that's implied, that he just said, okay, I'm going to watch TV. Actually, Kaylee came in, I came in, Mark Meadows was there, and we just, we came up with a, what we should do with the mob. And it was not, to me, honestly, Brian, it was not an insurrection. It was a mob that had turned out, it had gone out of control. And my experience with mobs and when we do riot control is once that happens, you've got a major problem because then you've lost the initiative, is to take some type of action that would get ourselves out there to the people that were on the streets out there and telling them to back off. So Kaylee Kay came in, I came in, Mark Meadows came in, uh, you had uh, Patrick Baloney, the White House lawyer, came in. And instead, what we drafted, we drafted a, a recommendation for him to do a video shot, which he did. So the, the implication was he was disengaged and letting go. That's not true at all. We came as advisors, gave him the advice, and he took the advice going forward. Um, so what was said, it was only partially true, and because we were all offering advice, and I think he took the advice. So that's the reason I say all along I felt very comfortable with what was going on. Was it a bad situation? Sure it was, but nobody was running around there in a panic mode. It was very disciplined, very organized, very controlled, and we, I thought we would give them good advice. So the, did you cooperate with the book? Well, I was asked, when Bob Woodward, I talked to Bob Woodward, yeah, he called me. I didn't say a lot of stuff, but I said, yeah, I did it because I wanted to defend what we were doing because there was too much information going out there, Brian, about what was happening that was not true. And I just told him that. Brian, you know, I told Bob, and I've known Bob for, for almost six years now, that no, that's not what was happening. You're making it sound like the place was out of control. It was not out of control. In fact, it was in control. The president was under control. We were under control. We knew something bad was happening up there. It was a riot, and we wanted to get ahead of it. Okay. So, in other words, if I, if you are happy with the way you're quoted, should we be, should we take that as something? The veracity of the book all through and through. I mean, no. Oh. I never, I never trust. Uh, honestly, you asked me a direct question, Brian. I never trust anybody writing the book fully out there. But one thing you have to say about Wood, uh, Bob Woodward, he always has multiple sources to say what was going on. And if, and so I think he generally gets into the 80 or 90 percent of what's happening out there. That's the reason I have a major concern for the earlier comment. But I'm not going to run from any comments or what I said in the Oval. There's some stuff I wouldn't tell him. I wouldn't tell anybody about what happened with me and the president talking because it's just not proper. But, uh, but I, what I'm trying to tell you and your audience out there is that things were under control in the, in the uh, west wing of the White House. We knew what was going on uh, for the most part, and we were trying to get a handle on it. So, so General, will you ever consider that you knew the president now for at least his whole term? Were you ever concerned for his sanity? Was he, look like, was he losing it for a while after the election? 
Absolute, Brian, absolutely not. I mean, anybody who makes comments, those are moronic comments from people I've heard. In fact, I almost am tempted to call them imbecilic comments. No, not at all. I've been with him through some really, really tough situations and some really, really crisis actions that were going on out there. And I've never, never, never at all. He was always in control. I mean, he would, would he get his, his back up a couple times? Sure, but so would I, and so would you. So would anybody out there. I didn't have a problem with that. And we'd work through it. But, oh, no, I was, I was never uncomfortable being around him. He was a great commander-in-chief. He knew what he wanted to do. And he had, a great, he had assembled a really tight team around him there at the end. And I, and I was very confident about it. I, I was never not confident that he was making the bad decision. He, was, he always made really solid and hard decisions. Were they tough? Yeah. I've got no problem with them at all. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, thanks for straightening out the record. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. You got it. one 408 I'll come back with your calls. We just covered a lot of ground there. Then Ben Dominich will put this all in perspective and uh, talk about everything going on in the world right now. Don't move. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think China and Russia and Iran, they look at this botch botch withdrawal and what they see is incompetence that they think they might be able to exploit may lead to miscalculation. I don't know how it's possible. If, If in fact the people in charge of our foreign policy did not see all of these factors and conclude that there was a very real possibility of a very rapid uh, collapse, then we've got the wrong people making military and and diplomacy decisions in our government. And his point was he's seen the same intelligence as the president, and he thought Cabo was going to collapse, and rapidly, and he thought we should do something, and he didn't even know about the transcript with Gahadi, I assume, uh, and the phone call of him saying, we're getting invaded, and we need air cover. And the president ignored it. Steve, WRCN, Long Island. Hey, Steve. Hey, good morning, Brian. My question is, cannot Congress bring Woodward forward with him? He probably has recordings of all his interviews and question him with that. I'm not sure. Uh, I know I, I don't think he can do that. I don't think you can demand people's sources. And that's why reporters go to jail. Uh, but I <laughs> will say this. If you have this story, you have you have this is this is treason. This guy was going behind the scenes to undermine the president and talking to our number one enemy in the world and saying we won't attack enough. I'm going to attack. I'll give you a heads up. And what if they turn around and go, okay, that sounds great. I'm taking Taiwan. What are you going to do? I took uh, Hong Kong already. I I think, you know, I don't think you're going to stop me from invading India. Okay. Maybe you don't want to take India, but maybe you want half their their, uh, landmass and some of the border skirmishes we already witnessed. I mean— I would think that as a reporter, you got to come forward with that. I think personally, it's not going to hurt book sales. Here's one of the stories coming out in a book that I have in three months, but it's such a big national security story. I can't hold on to you know I can't hold hold on to it anymore. So hey, thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, quick announcement: uh, the President of Freedom Fighter. It's a book that's coming out that I think you're going to love. It's uh, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass. And their battle to save America's soul. I'm going to be doing stage shows on this with some of uh, the biggest affiliates we have and, and the most important. Hopefully we'll have one up in St. Louis and live appearances shortly. But the one thing I will say is we do have a whole bunch lined up already. And here it is. 
Charleston, West Virginia, Sunday, November 7th. Uh, Point of Vedra, Florida, December 3rd, WOKV listeners, WDBO will be happy to know. I'll be in Orlando, Florida, Sunday, November 21st. Clearwater, Florida, December 4th. Uh, so you just go to BrianKillMe.com, get tickets, VIP opportunity. This way I have a chance to get on stage and interact with you and VIP, a chance to sit down and talk. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I've been all over the state of California over the last many years, but notably in the last nine months. Conservative parts of the state, progressive parts of the state, folks that I, I know were going to vote no, and folks that I knew were going to vote yes on this recall and, and turned out to do just that. I, I said this many, many times on the campaign trail. You know, we may have defeated Trump, but Trumpism is not dead in this country. Well, 75 million people voted for President Trump, but President Trump is not a factor. I didn't think in California at all, but that's what they wanted to do. Obviously, you can see the tactics a mile away. Ben Dominich, he can't put anything over on him, at least I don't think. Fox News contributor, publisher of The Federalist, host of the Ben Dominich uh, podcast. Ben, uh, I guess we all knew how the recall was going to come out over the last couple of weeks. What? Who gains from this? Does he use this momentum to say, I am still the golden boy? Well, first off, I don't think that you can uh, say that this actually really gives him a ton of momentum. Uh, the, the media will will try to sort of frame it that way. But in reality, this should never have been something that, that even uh, came close to the idea of happening. And he had to work pretty hard and pull a lot of strings and, and frankly, you know, get, uh, you know, Joe Biden out there, turn uh, his opponents uh, into, you know, uh, caricatures of, of what they really are. In order to survive now, California is a very blue state. It's blue for uh, it's been blue for a long time, and I think that it's uh, one where it's very difficult for any kind of opposing view uh, to come after him. The real success that I think you have to say uh, was, that Gavin Newsom pulled off was preventing any of his potential Democrat foes from running against him. In which case, I think that this thing could have turned out to be a, a lot closer. True, there's uh, really not. Yeah. Uh, you know, a situation where you're going to have a conservative, libertarian, Republican uh, type, uh, someone like Larry Elder, succeed against Gavin Newsom among all the different uh, interests and and uh, and the things that were going along uh, in his in his way uh, politically. But I think if you had had someone who was, you know, perhaps able to make a a more moderate, I'm capable of actually doing a better job, uh, Democrat, get in the race, uh, then I think that he, he this easily could have gone differently for him. So you think um, a instead, moderate Republican would have had a better shot? I'm not sure, because I really think that what you are always going to get is no matter who gets in, even if they are you know truly a moderate Republican, they're going to get the caricature. They're going to get the same kind of, of you know, this is just a stalking horse for white supremacy uh, spin against them. Like they're going to they're going to use every tool that they had in the box anyway. I think that it really is. It's almost impossible to win statewide in California without being a Democrat. Um, and I think that really you you didn't have a conceivable situation where that was going to change. Now, what I do think uh, this does is it keeps Gavin Newsom in the in play potentially as a 2024 uh, challenger to potentially Kamala Harris or, uh, you know, a, a situation that could, you know, very well play out as being a, a real Democrat scrum. Uh, he's also someone who, uh, you know, is 
uh, certainly benefits from the fact that Andrew Cuomo is gone. So now you have basically one governor, one Democrat governor, uh, who has this kind of big state uh, potential who, you know, really would like to play on the national scene. He's always had that ambition in mind. Um, but frankly, I think that, that this really never should have gotten this far uh, and there really never should have been any doubt in people's minds uh, that he was going to be able to to pull it out. Right. Uh, here's a little of Larry Elder's message, and I don't think he's going away. Cut 29. I can't think of anything that this man has done in the last two years that success he deserves another day in office. However, we recognize that we lost the battle, but we are certainly going to win the war. So, you know, he he's very comfortable. He definitely knows the issues. He's not saying anything incorrect when I can't picture out anything that he did well. I mean, Gavin Newsom just would say, you don't want uh, Donald Trump's clone. But if you look yeah. at the water infrastructure, look at the wildfires, he's not taking care of the, the forest, the rolling blackouts slash brownouts. You look at the homeless situation, look at the economy and the crackdown. I mean, my goodness, guy's terrible. What has he done? Well, well, you know, but this is in common with what we're seeing from the Biden administration right now, where as much as we might say, you know, the, this, this is the left, this is ideology, et cetera, they're failing on such a capability standard of doing their jobs. That really needs to be a key part of the argument against them. Now, they want to turn this into an ideological thing or they want to, you know, I mean, the idea that Larry Elder is in some way a, a white supremacist, you know, come on. You know, but this is something that they're going to try to do, in, and it's kind of a preview of what the midterms are going to look like in the sense that they're going to try to distract from their own incapability at running government, of getting the job done, of having, you know, everything go sideways on them. They're trying, they're going to try to distract from that by turning this into, well, you can't trust them because they're crazy. Uh, and that's the only thing that they can go to now. And unfortunately, I think that Republicans uh, in, in general are not fully prepared to make that argument. Uh, they don't know how to push back, I think. And, and they should take a couple of lessons away from the way this went down, even in a very blue state, even in a situation where it was an uphill battle, uh, and apply it to what uh, what next year's midterms look like. So color me naive. I think if I'm a, if I'm a Republican that wants to – if I was running the RNC or if I was somebody who wants to make progress in a purple or uh, a purple or blue state, uh, the first thing I would do is go right to the people that always shut me off. I would look to – Win over the Asian community, which is only growing. Number who is very concerned, I imagine, about socialism. Number two is I'd go into the Hispanic community where I'm already making gains and find out what the issues are. Don't dictate. Let them know you care and want their vote. And then I would not give up on the urban vote. I would try to make inroads and make people make a choice. Right now, they're not showing up. Republicans, for the most part, look to maximize their base. They don't look to expand their universe. And I think that's well, a huge mistake. I, well, I think part of the problem, too, is to think about it in terms of outreach, uh, meaning that, you know, for many of these Hispanic voters, uh, you know, this was not the this past election was not the first time they voted for a Republican. They've been increasingly moving right on a host of different issues. And what they really have in common uh, with with a lot of conservatives who are more ideological is that they totally reject the critical race theory that we hear taught in schools uh, and uh, and that what they've seen play out over the past couple of years, in part because, uh, you know, CRT requires 
that every uh, every different ethnic group think of themselves as an outgroup, as something differently American. When most Hispanic voters, and in fact most uh, minority voters generally, uh, don't think of themselves that way. They think of themselves as Americans, as proud Americans who want their kids. You know, particularly if you're uh, if you're a rising middle class voter, they want their kids to live in the in the upper middle class area of town between a Smith and a Jones, and not care that their last name is Gonzalez. And that type of attitude is just totally at odds with what is being taught uh, in our public schools today by teachers and and, uh, advocated for by teachers' unions that Hispanic voters really have turned against in a major way, that they do not believe they have the interests of their children or the interests of the country at the center of what they're trying to do. Uh, And that's something that I think is is a very powerful message that really Democrats are incapable of saying, because as we've seen, the teachers unions are even more powerful than we ever imagined and have been you know, something that was impossible for the Democrat leaders to control. It worked the other way around during this entire pandemic. So I want people to hear a little of the testimony that took place yesterday as Anthony Blinken sat there almost in a, a coma, refusing to show any emotion. Uh, But he has to realize how bad he looked and how terrible his decisions were leading up to and up until this day when it comes to Afghanistan. Here's a little of what we heard yesterday. Believe it. There's Tim Kaine and Bob Menendez, Democrats, calling him out. Cut to. Mr. Secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. There has to be accountability. We had a terrible status quo as is. By your own admission, the Afghan government, even after billions of dollars in 20 years, was not self-sustaining, was not resilient. We should have known that as we began to draw down support, we were going to see the potential for a collapse. Since the disaster began unfolding in Afghanistan, we've seen the Biden administration making political excuses. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Kamala Harris is the vice president of the United States. You are the United States Secretary of State. You own this. The notion that General Milley said that nothing I or anyone else saw indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days, I just don't think that's true. So, I mean, I think they they really outlined much better than the House did. Maybe it was time limitations. How many things went wrong and are still going wrong with this operation? You know, the the interesting thing here, of course, is you're, you're hearing this criticism directed at Blinken in part because, you know, many of the, the members feel uh, they feel that he misrepresented the situation to them. They're embarrassed about what went on, even on the Democrat side. Uh, they're embarrassed by this complete uh, cluster of a situation that should have been avoided. Uh, but one of the things that I think we, we need to keep in mind here is the mention of General Milley. Um, It is a lot easier, as you know, Brian, to criticize a guy who doesn't have the uniform and doesn't have the medals on his chest, uh, someone like Tony Blinken, uh, than it is for people to to take up the cause against General Milley. But I think this breaking news story yesterday from this uh, new Woodward, Bob Woodward, uh, uh, Bob Costa book uh, regarding General Milley back-channeling with the communist Chinese his counterparts uh, working around the interests of then President Trump uh, is something that should be the a number one story uh, across the country right now because it's the sort of thing that represents uh, a banana republic approach to leadership. It's something that you know maybe our elites are comfortable with with generals doing things like this, but it is absolutely unacceptable in a republic to have 
uh, someone like the general make that determination at odds with the commander in chief. And I really think that both Milley and Blinken need to go. Everyone should be demanding that they be out. They failed in every respect. They failed, you know, in terms of uh, preparing for what was going on and representing what was going on to the Congress and to the people who made these decisions and in executing any kind of plan that would have prevented the loss of American lives and that would have uh, given a, a far more confidence uh, to Americans and to our allies around the world that we're capable of handling something like this. Uh, instead, as I said, it's an, it's an absolute disaster. No one can deny it. Uh, you know, only the president and the White House maintain otherwise. You know, the media can't even run defense for it uh, in the same way that they that they uh, you know have in so many other areas because it's so uh, blatant on its face. But again, Milley and Blinken both failed in this regard, and both of them need to go. And um, you know, ultimately, the White House seems to have the attitude of, well, we're just going to stick it out, and you know, you know, it doesn't matter what they say. Uh, I don't know that these hearings will change any of that, but it, it absolutely needs to be highlighted how completely they failed, uh, not just to serve the interests of the country, but the interests of, um, uh, of Americans on the ground in Afghanistan, who should have been the priority from day one. Right. By the way, I need him to speak before. I don't want to wait for uh, him to punt when it comes to books or a Pentagon spokesperson who spoke, talked to Jennifer Griffin, who just got another report while you were speaking. But I want you to hear what General Kellogg just told me. As you know, he was assistant to the vice president and interacted daily with the president. And he says he was quoted accurately and he did cooperate with the book when Bob Woodward called him up. So what he said to the president to tweet out during January 6th is true. But here's what he said when I asked him the same question about General Milley. There are only two national command authorities. It's the president and the secretary of defense. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is not in that line. He should not be calling his counterpart or anybody else out there without informing the president of the United States on what he was doing. So they violated, even Esper violated that. The one who should have picked up the phone is Esper if he wanted to do it. And then he should have told the president, he should have actually asked the president beforehand and said this is what he was going to do. I mean, that just shows some very candidly, Brian, some real incompetence on the part of Esper and Milley as well. So, I mean, that's a general commenting on a general. This guy is making his own policy. And as Marco Rubio brought up, what if he decides tomorrow that Joe Biden's senile? Is he going to take over the country yeah. again and do what he wants? Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the scarier thing is that uh, what if he decides that if he does it, uh, the media will all line up and have his back? You know, and, and paint him as being some kind of hero. Look, you know, we have a leadership class in Washington, that, including members of the military, that needs wholesale and significant change. And the reaction to President Trump's presidency has been an indication that, you know, the fish rots from the head. And I think that this is a situation, uh, particularly with Milley, where I talked to multiple members of Congress yesterday who are under the impression that General Milley himself is the source for this. I know that that's generally the impression uh, among uh, the, the people who uh, cover these things closely, uh, that he's actually, you know, effectively boasting about his his noble stand, you know, uh, against President Trump and, and again, in, in, in defense from his perspective of American interest. Uh, but this is so out of this is so beyond the pale. It's so out of line. It's absolutely unacceptable. And for all of the people who are serving out there who've been through so much, for all of the officers out there who've been uh, through so much in the 
in the past uh, year plus of, of uh, you know, trying to sustain morale, trying to, you know, keep uh, the, the people who are underneath them, who they command, um, uh, feeling like they can be proud to serve. This is a huge blow to all of that effort following on Afghanistan and the debacle mm-hmm. there. Uh, it's the kind of thing that creates enormous problems and, frankly, sends a lot of people who serve in the military uh, into very negative directions when it comes to uh, their feelings about the brass and how much faith they can have uh, in the, the top leadership of, right. of the military today, which is the last thing that we need in this moment. The Ben Dominich Podcast, available everywhere, and he's a Fox News contributor, publisher of The Federalist. Ben, thanks so much. Great to be with you as always, Brian. You got it. Uh, makes a lot of sense. All right, we're going to come back, and I'll tell you what Jennifer Griffin just found out about the Pentagon about this very story. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The Pope came out with a book this week which contains a series of essays examining faith and morality in today's secular world and the changing role of the Catholic Church as it approaches the 21st century. The book is entitled, God Himself Told Me That O.J. Is Guilty. (laughs) Judge Ito was interviewed this week by a local TV station in Los Angeles, asked by the interviewer if it was appropriate for a supposedly impartial judge to be on TV with his case still pending. Ito said... Maybe not, but how appropriate is it to kill your ex-wife? <laughs> O.J. Simpson's lawyers say they don't want the families of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman in the courtroom during the trial. They're afraid the presence of the family members will just remind O.J. of how much more killing he still has to do. So Norm MacDonald got himself fired, allegedly, from uh, NBC, SNL, because he would not back off O.J., and O.J. still had some friends even after the murder. Uh, Don Omar, wasn't it Don Omar? Yeah, was he the, the, the West Coast uh, president of NBC, I believe? Was the yeah. One? yeah. So he was uh, upset. He should have backed off. So they got rid of him as a Weekend Update guy, who was so much funnier than the guys they have now. I can't. I mean, from the moment He's, he left, nobody's been even half as funny as him on the weekend up Yeah, Colin Quinn replaced him. He was good. He was unique. He was good, he Definitely yeah. a personality, a New York uh, personality. But this guy was a comedian's comedian. Every, every comedian loved him. And we met him in person. He was on Fox & Friends, and he knew the show. He knew the network. He was fantastic. Uh, we played a clip of it the other day. So it's just sad. He passed away at 61 due to long, long-suffering cancer. So uh, you're going to see a lot of tributes to him, and deservingly so. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Find out where I'll be this fall. I want to see you in person. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We've got a big hour coming your way. You're going to be joined by Dr. Tawik Hamid, I should say. I will be joined. He wrote the book Inside Jihad, How Radical Islam Works, Why It Should Terrify Us, and How to Defeat It. You know why he knows? He was once a radical Islamist, and he was great on TV, and I know he'll be better on radio. And Rich Lowry standing by to put the Biden administration in perspective. Also, what this new tax plan is going to mean, no matter what shape it takes, we're seeing roughly what they've outlined, if they can get their act together and get everyone to vote for what it's going to mean for society and what their image is. And they look, he looks uh, also what uh, Norway and Sweden are doing. We don't want any of that. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to all those things that we hold dear as Californians and I would argue as Americans. Yeah, uh, Gavin Newsom won. Recall fails. It falls way too short. uh, Gavin Newsom gets to finish out his term in California. Why were the Dems so nervous in a bright blue state to begin with? Oh, yeah, he's terrible at his job. We'll discuss it. Number two. Imagine if tomorrow General Milley decides, I think Joe Biden is senile. And so you know what? I'm not going to follow his orders. I'm going to collude with Russia and China to prevent us from acting. Or 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 a future president. I don't think he's in his right mind either because it is the essence, a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. Uh, Yeah, and we're talking about General Milley and the revelations in the Bob Woodward book. Uh, Not only did he preside over the president's military catastrophe in Afghanistan, I'm talking about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but if the Woodward book is true, he tried to take over a country while showing allegiance to China over Trump. General's got to speak up or pack up. Number one. Who made the decisions on this? Was it the president of the United States? Ultimately, uh, the president makes the decisions. That's correct. Have you submitted your resignation regarding this issue? I have not. As a secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. There has to be accountability. You would think so. Tony Blinken balks on stranding Americans, airlifting unknown Afghans. He did it, mistakenly droning a family of allies. That seems to be the case. Falsely claims the Afghan collapse unknowable. The people intel- who were exposed to the same intelligence he was said that is absolutely not true. And now we have already given millions of dollars to the new Taliban government. And guess what? They want more. Tell me if you're comfortable with anything that I just told you, because I certainly am not, and I wish it wasn't uh, indeed true. In a matter of moments, Rich Lowry will be joining us. Uh, and I guess we should talk about the lead story, and that is General Milley, according to Bob Woodward's book, moving behind the scenes so nervous about the actions of Donald Trump, so motivated and alarmed by Speaker Pelosi's phone call when she said, take the nuclear codes from him. She would actually, He would actually plot and plan with the Pentagon to throttle the president— curb his what he thought were his desires and make sure he didn't attack China? Really? Attack China? Here's Marco Rubio. If this is indeed true, cut 20. I honestly hope that tomorrow we're going to have a statement from General Milley saying this is an absolute lie. This never happened because the alternative is we basically now live in a country where a general can decide, I don't like what a president's doing. I don't think a president is in his right mind. I'm going to ignore his warning and I'm going to collude with our potential enemies to prevent our president elected by the people from taking action. Yeah, uh, he's got to speak up and having his statements go through Jennifer Griffin might help. But what about the country? Oh, we have to worry that if you, for example, I mean, not many people think that Joe Biden is is acting with a full deck. I mean, if you watch him struggle with his own copy, fly off the handle when it comes to reporters, you can only imagine what it's like behind the scenes. Well, last week we got a report that Politico said that his staffers are so nervous and so disenchanted with his Q&As, they often mute the TV and can't bear to watch. Maybe General Milley's going to decide. I think it's time to take control of that government, too. Cut 21. Imagine if tomorrow General Milley decides, I think Joe Biden is senile. 
and so you know what? I'm not going to follow his orders. I'm going to collude with Russia and China to prevent us from acting. Or, or, they, or a future president. I don't think he's in his right mind either, because it, it is the essence a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. It is. So if so, just understand this report. Now, some people listening today said, yeah, Donald Trump was out of control after he lost the election. He kept saying voter fraud. Remember January 6th. He was angry. Okay? He wasn't out of control. No one thought that Donald Trump had lost it. This is Donald Trump. This is the way he is. It's the way people love him and the way people detest him. But that's the way he leads. He knows exactly what he's doing every second of the day and gets upset when people push back against him. According to the same story, he told Mike Pence, you better go in there and not verify this election. He says, I don't have the power. I'm not going to be your friend. All right. Does that mean he's crazy? you got to take over the government? He's going to bomb China? No. Did he tell people to go and take over the, the Congress? No. Did he have a rally that I thought was ill-timed at the White House, got people crazy, and they went over to protest, and since there was no security, they went right in, right into the Capitol? Yeah, all that happened. But it doesn't mean he's going to bomb China. Doug McGregor was put into a, in a Pentagon post in the last few weeks, cut 23. There are certain things that we know. These are the facts. First of all, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has no statutory authority over operational forces of any kind. That means that he is not in a position to order anyone in the armed forces to say or do anything. He can't do it. He is preeminently the senior military advisor to the president. That's what he is. So in theory, before he would make such a phone call, he would discuss the subject of the phone call with the president, the commander in chief. He certainly would not do something without coordinating with the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, because this is beyond defense. This is a foreign policy statement that he's making. I think so, too. I mean, it is uh, beyond defense. It is a foreign policy statement. And the fact that he thinks he knows more. uh, And you heard what Ben Dominich told us last hour. Ben Dominich says he's calling Congress people yesterday to get a firsthand account of the story that he believes, according to his sources, General Milley is the source to this. These are the quotes from him, not from somebody who overheard. They're actually from him. And General Kellogg told us first hour today that when he was quoted in that, telling the president tweet out to calm people down once this mob, meaning January 6th, once this mob gets going, uh, they're going to be hard to control. He goes, yeah, I, Bob Woodward called me up to verify the story. He says, yeah, I told him that was, that was true. So this is indeed true. This guy's got to go today. And for Joe Biden to think that he should be secure with General Milley there is nuts. And if they keep him, General Milley's going to owe him his career and his retirement so he'll do exactly whatever he says, which is nev- never in our interests. Senator John Kennedy, cut 25. Based on his behavior in the last year or two, we don't have a, a military leader. We, we've got a politician. General Milley has a lot of explaining to do, and I think he ought to stop bellowing and honking on like a goose about white rage and actually try to make our country more secure. Yeah, I think that would definitely work. So we're seeing all that take place. The other big story that we'll go over is what happened with the recall yesterday. The exit polls are disturbing. So Gavin Newsom gets about 60 or 58 percent of the vote. It looks like Larry Elder got the bulk of the other votes, over 30 percent. So the Republican conservative in a very blue state did so did well overall. But in terms of voting yes or no to recall, they voted no. They want to keep them. And why? According to the exit polling, take it for what it will, 70 percent support the mass mandate for schools. 45 percent say the reason that they kept him in office, they thought he handled the pandemic well with restrictions and all. That's nuts to me. 
The top issues, the top issues to keep him, 42% pandemic, 22%. He liked the way he's handling homeless. What the heck? The wildfires, 18%. The economy, 9%. Crime, 2%. Why did he want to go when asked? Why did you want him to go? They said COVID, uh, why, here, economy, 27%. Crime, 17%. COVID, 15%. Homelessness, 23%. Amazing to me. Homelessness was a plus for people that voted for him to stay. You're pro-homeless. When we come back, Rich Lowry joins us at the bottom of the hour. You're going to hear from a former terrorist who won inside jihad because he was there with his radical mind. And he'll talk about what the situation is right now in Afghanistan from his sources and from his knowledge firsthand. Big hour, don't move, Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And I think that this is a situation, particularly with Millie, where I had talked to multiple members of Congress yesterday who are under the impression that General Milley himself is the source for this. I know that that's generally the impression uh, among uh, the, the people who uh, cover these things closely, uh, that he's actually, you know, effectively boasting about his his noble stand, you know, uh, against President Trump and, and again, in, in, in defense from his perspective of American interest. Uh, but this is so out of this is so beyond the pale. It's so out of line. It's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, that is Ben Dominich doing some original reporting for The Federalist and for Fox News, trying to find out the General Milley story. Is it Bob Woodward sensationalizing, or was he looking to take over the government to a degree because because he thought really Donald Trump was going to bomb and nuke China because he was so desperate to hold on to power? Rich Lowry joins us now, editor of the National Review, author of The Case for uh, Nationalism. I also got two articles I want to feature uh, about why Democrats can't pay for their ambitions because we're about to get this reconciliation package and the real Biden presidency emerges. Rich, first off, on the Milley story, the, are you as disturbed by this as most of us are? Yeah, no, it's completely outrageous. We we have a civilian-run government. The military answers to civilians. This was a very important national tradition established beginning with George Washington. So if this is true, he's got to go. Um, you know, I don't 100 percent trust Bob Woodward's reporting necessarily on anything. So I'd want to hear Millie under oath and have some investigation. The most explosive, obviously, is the statement that he told his Chinese counterpart that he'd give him a heads up, a heads up if the United States was going to launch an attack on China. I want to know who said that. If, it, if Millie himself told Woodward that, well, ask him. Under oath, whether he told Woodward and escort him from the building immediately, if he did. If it's looser sourcing, I want to know what was what was said or, or done. I think regardless, Millie should go, even if uh, the most spectacular allegations here aren't true. It's clear he's kind of maneuvering behind the president's back. He he's right in the center of the botch of, of Afghanistan. So I, I think the case for Millie going, as social scientists say, is overdetermined. There are a lot of reasons for him to go. If he doesn't speak, he can't. It's not a. It's a luxury on the last book. He's like, I don't really want to talk about past books about uh, Donald Trump and being prepared in case you want to take over the government. And now, okay, this one he can't. And I don't want to wait for him to testify in a week. Don't you think he's got to call a presser today if it's indeed not true? Well, I want him on oath. Um, I, I think, yeah, if it's not true, he should be out there saying it's not true immediately. We should hear the n- denials right now. 
But in terms of just getting to the bottom of it, I don't, I don't trust anything he wouldn't say under oath. So swear him in and ask him every single question. And th- this is just not acceptable behavior from uh, our top military leaders. And you, you want to send very strongly the message that th- this can never happen again, and it's not tolerated in a small-D democratic republic. So in, in one of your National Review columns this week, you write about why Democrats can't pay for their ambition. $3.5 trillion. We know about the $1.2 trillion that uh, is bipartisan, allegedly, 19 Republicans signing off on it. Now they want $3.5 trillion, a simply party-line reconciliation vote. Even though Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are going to the White House today, they only want to give $1 trillion. Regardless, they want, they want free preschool. They want free junior college. They want free school lunches. Uh, they want elder care. Uh, they want to expand uh, Obamacare, expand Medicare. And you say the cradle-to-grave welfare state is unaffordable. It sounds like they're looking to pay for it. Well, they're looking to pay for part of it. Um, I don't think they're going to get this. This House and Means tax plan is $2.2 trillion or $2.1 trillion, and they want to spend three point five. So you got a big gap there. And then, two, I don't think they'd actually get the full $2 trillion. There, there are a lot of Democrats who are uncomfortable with it. And the fact is, if you want to have a European-style social welfare state, what the Europeans do, they realize you can't squeeze it just out of the rich. There's not enough money there. you got to tax the middle class. So a country like Denmark has a top tax rate of uh, nearly 60 percent, and it applies to people making the equivalent of $70,000 and above uh, here in the United States. So you, you have a tax like that. Yeah, you can fund all they want to do, but they, they don't want to do that because that would be politically toxic. So we'll end up with, um, you know, this this will largely be debt financed if they get it. And, you know, it's not 100 percent. There's some chance that both of these bills could collapse in a heap. I think that's unlikely, but I think they're, they're, the, the tax number and the spending number are going to be much lower than what they're talking about now. Right. And what they want to do is just expand. And Rich, this stuff is unaffordable. We're already paying this on a deficit. So would Republicans going to walk in there and go, yeah, I'm going to tired of those school lunches. I'm tired of the free preschool. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of the junior college. Yeah. Right away, it's, it's, it's politically challenging, not impossible, to tell people you're going to lose that child tax credit. Tell everyone all those things I just mentioned are going to be vaporized because you're the politician who wants to take something given to you away, right? Yeah. So that, that's why the game for the Democrats is just to get as many new programs started as possible. Even if they're sunsetted supposedly next year or two years from now, even if the, the dollar amount you're spending on them is very small, because once you start the programs, it's almost impossible to stop them. So that's why I think you'll see one trick here. They'll try to get the top line number down. You know, it's not going to be 3.5, but they'll try to start all the programs, even if they play fiscal games to try to get the, the, the number of the spending down. So instead of, you know, having the child tax credit, whatever it is, go for 10 years and say, oh, we're just going to do it for three years. And that reduces the spending. But once you have the program started, it's really hard to stop. All right. I want to go to your other column, uh, Rich. You wrote um, you wrote the last week just about the real Biden administration's emerging. So he wanted to be this transformational president. He's meeting with historians talking about what a great opportunity he has. What reality is he going to do and what is he capable of doing? Well, I think he's down now to his natural level. He's below 50 percent somewhere. Forty two percent, according really- to Quinnipiac. Yeah, he's had some really bad results like Quinnipiac. He's about mid-30s among independents, a really bad place for him to be. 
and he has really slender majorities in Congress. He doesn't really have a majority in the Senate. He has a tie in the Senate and has you know five or six vote majority in the House. But you're not you're not going to be the next FDR LBJ in that sort of situation. And I think it's it's finally it's dawning on them. I think this reconciliation bill is their last big shot in anything before the midterms. And they're very likely going to lose the House and have some some serious chance of losing the Senate. If Biden is down at 42 percent next November, they're going to lose the Senate, too. And then his then then he's into lame duck status the next two years. Uh, right now, I think they're in total disarray. Real quick, uh, if they don't get either one of these packages, they know they're about to lose the House and maybe the Senate, correct? I worry about how desperate they're going to be. They're going to be desperate. That's why I think at the end of the day, even though it'll seem at times, I believe, that both these things are going down, that uh, all Democrats from each wing of the party will look at – stare into the abyss and say, no, we've we got to get something done. So they'll get something done. I think the top-line spending will be $2 trillion probably less. So a big step down from 3.5, but still more money than we should be spending. Rich, thanks so much. Appreciate your perspective. Thanks, Brian. All the best. Rich Lowry on the breaking news as well as the big picture. When we come back, an extremist talks about extremism in Afghanistan, the reality on the ground from a former radical Islamist. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There's nowhere else to go. Stay right here. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think that the Taliban winning the war in Afghanistan and then the way our exit happened has absolutely inspired jihadists all over the world. Um, The Taliban is saying, we just didn't defeat the United States. We defeated NATO. We defeated the world's greatest military power ever. So there's a celebration going on. We defeated the Soviet Union, then it fell. Now we've defeated NATO, right? Maybe they can fall too. I think not only will jihadists be inspired, but a lot of them are going to come to Afghanistan to be part of the celebration, to be be part of Jihadist Central. That was Michael Morell, knows his stuff, deputy director, of the uh, uh, former acting director of the CIA and deputy director for years, briefer of uh, President Obama and President uh, Bush, of course, uh, and the war on terror launched with him there and his expertise. Dr. Tawik Hamid joins us now. Uh, he is re- author of Inside Jihad, How Radical Islam Works, Why It Should Terrify Us, and How to Defeat It. First off, doctor, do you agree with what you just heard from Michael Morrell? Absolutely, 100%. Every word really meant something, and it was very real. The jihadists will be inspired by this wave withdrawal that humiliated the U.S., and I can see this in the Arab media everywhere. They are celebrating, and their supporters are really uh, excited now about uh, the concept of jihad again. And that doesn't benefit anyone. For the moderates in the Middle East, and there are more than ever— So nobody, I mean, the people that are rejoicing are our enemies, correct? Absolutely, they are. They are the enemies, and they they will continue to be enemies until we defeat their ideology. And, and this is the only way, really, to deal, or the main way to deal with this disease. 
So a couple of things. You should tell our audience your background. Uh, so you wrote Inside Jihad because you were. You were a radical yeah. Islamist, right? Absolutely. I was born in Cairo, Egypt, for a very secular family, and my upbringing was very secular. I discovered God when I was studying the DNA molecule. I wanted to know him. I wanted to serve him. And uh, uh, sadly, in the medical school, I was invited by a radical group called Jama'a Islamiyah that worked legally back then in our medical school. Uh, and they, they uh, invited me to join them. I joined them, and in few months period, I changed it from a very innocent child to uh, another human being who was willing to travel to Afghanistan to wage jihad, who wanted to implement the Sharia rules as you see Taliban is doing. So it's complete change in my life within few months of brainwashing. And after that, I left them, thank God, due to some reason, which was they asked me to share with them in kidnapping a police officer and bury him alive. And I couldn't take it, Brian. So I decided not to continue in this path. This was 40 years ago, and I turned against them since then. So they told you to kill a police officer and bury him alive? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember that, the moment. And, and that's when you said, I'm out? Uh, yes. When this happened, I felt that was too much for me to to accept, and I started to think. And if I told you some details of the story, the first thing they said to me in the Jama'a Islamiyah, in this radical group, was al-fikru kufr. Uh, in Arabic, it's an Arabic word that means if you started to think, you will become an infidel. So the very first thing they did to me, Brian, was suppression of my critical thinking. That's why I, I wrote this op-ed about brain scan and fighting it in the brain. Understood. All right. So we have, we're doing a pretty good job on fighting radical Islam. In fact, some of the Middle Eastern leaders, even though we don't agree with Egypt's tactics on Saudi Arabia's prince chopping up one of our journalists, I got it. But they recognized the, the wasabi, uh, uh, all this, uh, all this radical Islam, these teachers and these what was going on in a lot of these madrasas had to stop, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And on several occasions, President Sisi spoke to the religious scholars clearly and unambiguously that they need to change. Mohammed bin Salman has changed significant things in Saudi Arabia. You can't imagine. I lived in Saudi Arabia for three years when it was under Sharia rules, uh, uh, literal understanding of Sharia rules. And Mohammed bin Salman is doing a real revolution now in everything. You see art, you see music, you see uh, uh, liberty. You see freedoms. So, and the people, they, most of the Saudis are young generation. They are very happy with him for doing so. So, I think there are some changes. The online, the internet also played a major role in making the change happen. There are many reformers at individual level, like myself, who have been trying to change the mindset of the Muslim world and young Muslims. And to some extent, they succeeded. They are working alone, but they are using the internet effectively, and they are doing a great job. So right now, the Taliban's back in control, and people are saying, well, if they want to be part of the world community, they'll reform. And then we're going to hold them accountable. What's your reaction to that, Dr. Mead? 
This is a big lie from the Taliban, as usual. They justify lying by a concept called tiqya, which is a form of lying to deceive what they consider infidel, infidels until they become more powerful. I don't believe at all the Taliban is sincere about this. Otherwise, we would have seen some significant change in their ideology. But their ideology is still the same and will remain the same unless the world community did, did something significant against this ideology. To defeat it. So right now we are giving we are giving the Taliban. Um, let me see. Uh, we have, they have 18 million Afghans who are dependent on the government for food and shelter. We have given them 64 million dollars, and the world community overall has given the 1.2 billion in international aid. And the Taliban saying, "Have a heart, have a big heart. You're a big country. We let your people out alone." Uh, uh, without incident, which is wrong, 13 of our guys died. So give us more. Should we? No, unless uh, they change and uh, their ideology in certain aspects and they accept to change their education, uh, unless they show significant change in their ideological belief, which includes jihad and wars against non-Muslims, and suppression of non-Muslims in their communities and suppression of women, I believe unless they change, we should have a clear stand. It's like slavery. Uh, remember, Brian, when, when the world and America here had a strong stance against slavery. Yep. So we didn't tolerate slavery. There is one phrase I would like to quote from my wife about this issue. I'll tell you why. She said one day that it was not... We, 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 America has not become beacon for freedom and democracy because of its tolerance. In fact, because we were intolerant, we became beacon for liberty and, and, uh, and modernity and democracy. Had we been tolerant of slavery, slavery wouldn't exist today. So I think there are certain things, Brian, that we need as international community and civilized people to have clear stand against certain aspects uh, like we did with slavery, and when we were intolerant, we actually became beacon for liberty and modernity. So I think in this situation of human history, we need to sh- show zero tolerance or complete intolerance to the value system of Taliban, and we shouldn't really be supportive of them at any level unless they change. Which you don't think is going to happen. You outline a couple of things that we could do. You say to defeat radical Islam, implement an impenetrable vetting process. we got to find out who the radicals are out there? You have some, for example, some things we could do to make sure you check social media, you talk to them, or certain giveaways or things that radicals can't lie about? Uh, actually, they will try uh, to lie, but there are ways to discover covert forms of radicalism. There are certain types of questions, and when you analyze the answer and the content and the speed of response, and when you say to them even simple greeting and see the response to the greeting, the words they use, the way they stand in uh, the prayer in the mosque. So all of these, there are different ways. Some of them are very typical for the radical groups. So there are certain aspects when you analyze 
analyze them from different angles, you can reach some form of conclusion okay. or, or a profile. And if a person changes all of a sudden from moderate person, for example, to have some elements of radicalism, you have to be very cautious because this person might, if he is in a position to induce harm to us, he can use his position for doing so. Like if he was working in a virology lab or nuclear lab, for example, and he became radical, just imagine the damage that he can inflict upon our society. So I think we have to be very cautious and detect early and the covert signs of radicalism, and there are ways to do this. What government should we be supporting? You mentioned that there are elements that this prince is doing in Saudi Arabia we should support. Here's the thing, the problem we have. If we see a dictator out there like the Egyptian leader, uh, we say, well, he's not doing things in democratic reforms and giving others. He's too brutal on the crackdowns, so we're not going to support him. But he is he does see Islamic extremism as a real threat to him. Therefore, I am all for let's make sure that that's in our interest to support him. We remember what it was like to have a Muslim Brotherhood leader of Egypt. Where do you stand? I would support uh, any leader uh, in in this situation who sometimes may have to become a little bit of a dictator to suppress the radical Islamic elements. Uh, sadly, sadly, when you compare, for example, the radical groups in Europe, how many attacks they did in Europe and in, in Germany, in France, in Spain, in London, even in America here, and we are democratic societies, compared to what they do in China, they did nothing, despite the fact that the government is cracking down on the Muslim community there. If you would know about the, the minority of Muslim community, the Chinese government is cracking down on them, but the radicals never did any single attack in China because they know they could be brutal in their reaction. I am afraid to say that being so nice sometimes just encourages radicalism. So see, I can understand. See, what you should understand, situation. too, we have to understand that in the West, especially in America. Well, you can't be so brutal. You know, our, our heavy-handed ways are working against us. It's the only thing they understand. They understand power and strength and a willingness to use it, correct? Sadly, sadly, you are correct. Sadly, but that is the truth, yeah. But the fact that they will have relations with China, even though they have have at least a million Muslims in concentration camps, shows how insincere their fundamentalism is. Don't you agree? I agree 100%. And there is another factor with China here that they already uh, hate America because of religious reasons. And I don't want to go into its details now, but they hate the West because of the value system is completely against them. They want to suppress women. They want to stone women to death. They want slavery. They want to suppress freedom of religion. And we are against all of their value system. So they hate us. With the Russians, they have an old revenge from what Russians did to them years and years ago when there was a fight between them and Russia. So the Afghani people have the concept of revenge even after years. So they will not cooperate with Russia. With China, it's new country, and they are willing to accept some, for example, example, deal with them just because they hate us. They hate America and Russia. So so with China, there is another element here that uh, they will not go to the, the, the West. And China now is w- winning Afghanistan, if you think about it. So we did the war 20 years of spending trillions of dollars. We lost several thousands of human lives. And at the end, China is getting Afghanistan in its hand. 
So when people say China and Russia would have loved us bogged down in Afghanistan is such an incorrect statement because we weren't bogged down. We were using it to our advantage to fight and keep an eye on radical Islam and stay within miles of their border, correct? Absolutely correct. And sadly, when when we use the word fight, we, we only focus on the military component of the problem and ignored completely the ideological component. That's why we lost this war. And I can say it clearly. We lost this war because the, the threat is the same. The enemy is coming back with full strength. And as you mentioned at the beginning, they are very happy and very arrogant now that they won America, they won the NATO. And they are victorious. So uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say that we really lost this war. Trying to, to sugarcoat this, trying to use other nice expressions is, is interesting, but it's not conveying the reality. So I just wanted to give you, I'll end with this. Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, who leads the Defense Intelligence Agency, he's deputy director there. He said the current assessment, probably conservatively, is one to two years for al-Qaeda to build some capability at least to threaten our homeland. Because they are back there. Zawahiri seems to have cut his tape from Afghanistan. Uh, do you think he's on the money? Uh, he is Absolutely correct here, but I will add that Al-Qaeda will grow not only in Afghanistan, but in other places that could be supported by the drugs, by the uh, money laundering in Afghanistan, by a a, a lot of support that can come to them uh, through the Taliban. So even Al-Qaeda in Africa can flourish, Al-Qaeda in the Middle East can flourish. It's one group that become powerful and they can get the money and they can support other groups elsewhere. So the phenomena actually will not be localized and limited to Afghanistan. That is the real worry. It will be in Africa and in the Middle East and can affect right. our interests globally. Pick up his book. Uh, he was a radical Islamist, and he wants to make sure we don't get any new ones and keep America safe at home. Dr. Tavik Hamid, author of Inside Jihad, How Radical Islam Works and Why It Should Terrify Us and How to Defeat It. Doctor, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You, you are welcome, Brian. Thank you. I wish we didn't need his expertise, but we do. one 408 Back with your calls in just a second to listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Was O.J. Simpson high on speed the night of the murders? Absolutely not, said defense attorney Johnny Cochran today. And a simple test of any of O.J.'s blood found at the crime scene will prove it. Yes, uh, that is just a little bit of Norm MacDonald, who passed away at the age of 61. Uh, Let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. So as he was on SNL from 93 to 99, outstanding stand-up comic, he had some uh, series. He never really loved it. He loved being on stage. He came and did Fox a couple of times. One time on Fox and Friends. He's fantastic. He's a comedian's comedian. Uh, He will be uh, missed. And everyone is stunned by this. Look for a lot of tributes coming out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. Like nine years, I mean, I was kept it from just about everybody uh, in his inner circle, right. except for maybe his brother. Next, SpaceX prepares to send the first all civilian crew into orbit. A 30-year-old tech mogul has plunked down an unspecified amount, I've been saying it's zillions, uh, to fellow billionaire and SpaceX owner Elon Musk to fly 
Isaacman. His name is Jared Isaacman, the American founder and chief executive commerce firm Shift for Payments uh, into space. So he'll go up with the Crew Dragon capsule and come back down. Uh, it'll be the Falcon 9 rocket, 8 o'clock tonight. That should be great. I love that. Another industry ready to go. So would you go now, if this really truly opens up to the to the public, would this I, be I've, something you would, you would like to do? If I had the time, uh, because there's other stuff I like to do. I like going to games. Next, 13-year-old Wisconsin boy who saved four sisters from a fire was then saved by his dog. He's 13 years old. He got his four sisters out of the house of fire spread, then went back in to try and put out the flames with a fire extinguisher. But the family dog, Mandy, soon ushered Brian Omar out of the house as well. What a great story, uh, just as his parents made it out to the driveway. Good job, dog. Good job, 13-year-old. I'm sure he'd make a great firefighter if he chooses that. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Visit me in Orlando, Jacksonville, West Virginia, and Clearwater, Florida. Find out how. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.